Um, it's a, a real pleasure to be here again. Uh, the, my hometown's Risk Management Association chapter, uh, essentially the gathering in Richmond of the greater Richmond area banking community. Uh, we were mentioning, someone was mentioning at the, uh, the head table here um, uh, during our meal that this uh, is the, w one of the larger turnouts we've seen. I know in, in my tenure as president and doing these every year, this is the largest turnout I've seen. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure my talent hasn't varied it much uh, over the time period in which the attendance at this event has um, uh, fluctuated. So I'm going to take this as a, a, another cyclical indicator that perhaps we should track in a more organized uh, basis uh, we're always looking for uh, good, reliable statistics about local economic conditions and, in particular, confidence. And I, I promise you, just in case you're wondering, uh, that this um, attendance at this will not be taken as evidence in a regulatory framework uh, of uh, uh, a lack of safety and soundness on the part of your banks. <clears throat> so I'm, f I'm sure you're all familiar with uh, the macroeconomic background of our current situation, even if you did not attend last year's luncheon. Uh, this 18-month recession that we experienced that ended in June of 2009 was the most severe contraction since the Great Depression. I'm sure you've heard that observation several times before. In the five quarters that followed the end of the recession, uh, real gross domestic product grew at a, only a 2.9% annual rate, uh, which is barely above trend and is quite modest when compared uh, to other cyclical recoveries from similar uh, recessions. Particularly frustrating uh, over this time period was the, the soft patch that uh, the economy entered last summer when GDP growth fell uh, to below uh, 2%. But I believe we have emerged from that soft patch and have begun a phase of the recovery uh, in which growth can be sustained at above uh, trend rate. And that should help us make more progress on our pressing economic challenges as a country. So let me take a closer look at our relatively sluggish economic performance in this recovery. Before I do, though, I have to note, as always, you've heard me say this before, that the views I express here are my own and don't necessarily reflect uh, the views of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. An obvious explanation for the sluggishness of this recovery is the sharp drop in housing construction uh, that we saw in the recession. The preceding housing boom uh, caused significant overbuilding in many regions of the country, and that resulted in a large number of vacant homes that are good substitutes for new construction. This overhang has dampened housing activity in many local markets, and it's kept new housing starts at about half of the rate that would be needed to grow the housing stock in line with at the same rate as uh, the growth in population uh, and thus households. Consequently, residential investment has failed to make a positive contribution to growth in this recovery. In contrast, consider the mo two most severe recessions in the past 60 years, uh, those of 1973-75 uh, and 1981-82. Residential investment rose an average of 40% in the first year of recovery following those recessions. Another thing that's been particularly striking this time has been the behavior of household spending. In a typical recovery, consumers gradually begin to see a brighter future, and they add to spending ahead of significant gains in employment and income. That did not happen this time. 
uh, in the first five quarters of this recovery, in which consumer spending increased at an annual rate of just below 2%, uh, we saw consumers exercising some caution. This is in contrast to two, the two other severe recessions that I just mentioned, when households' uh, spending grew by an average of 6.5% in the first year of the expansion, thereby adding considerably to real GDP growth. Thus, a major part of the relative weakness in the early part of this recovery has been due to the cautiousness um, of households uh, in our country about sp expanding spending. There were ample reasons for caution, however. First, the labor market remained weak in the early stage of the recovery. The unemployment rate hit 10.1% in October 2009 and declined only marginally through most of last year. Second, during the recession, consumer wealth was battered by a drop in st stock prices that was fairly sharp and by a substantial fall in home prices. As a result, households devoted more of their income in this recovery to repairing their balance sheets by reducing outstanding credit and rebuilding savings. Spending growth had to take a back seat. While housing construction and consumer spending underperformed in this recovery, I should note that equipment and software investment and exports have been stronger than in comparable past recoveries. Investment in non-residential structures has been weak, but no weaker than a typical uh, past recoveries. So against that backdrop of a sluggish recovery, many of our readings for the last quarter of 2010 point to a distinctly sunnier outlook. Most importantly, consumer spending is starting to show some real signs of life. Retail sales rose at a blistering 12% annual rate in the four months, I'm sorry, in the five months ending in December. We also know that auto and light truck sales posted a solid 2.3% annual, uh, annual rate advance in December, I'm sorry, 2.3 month over month uh, advance in December, uh, December over November. Um, and that capped off, capped off a fourth quarter in which uh, auto sales were the strongest in uh, over two years. The fundamentals supporting household spending are also improving. Labor markets have been gradually firming. The national unemployment rate ended last year down seven-tenths of a percentage point from its peak. Payroll employment has been growing uh, throughout last year with 128,000 jobs uh, added on net uh, during the four, each month during the fourth quarter of uh, last year. In another side of improving labor demand, the average work week has increased by half an hour over the course of last year. And while the growth in average hourly earnings is only 1.8% last year, inflation was even less at 1.0%, so real earnings were on an upward trajectory. The firmer labor market has given a modest boost to growth in real household income. At the same time, increased savings has allowed many households to pay down debt and build assets and really position themselves uh, to expand spending going forward. Household debt's fallen for the last two and a half years, and stock prices have risen significantly during the recovery, and that's led to substantial improvements in the financial positions of many households. Since the end of the recession, the net worth of households as a whole in the United States has increased slightly over $4 trillion and is up 12% from the low point that it reached in this cycle. Given these stronger fundamentals, it's not a stretch to project robust growth in consumer spending this year. Business investment also should make a significant contribution to growth this year. 
Investment in equipment and software has grown 20% since the end of the recession. Technological improvements continue to provide organizations throughout the country with new opportunities for streamlining business processes and reducing costs through productivity enhancement, enhancing investments in uh, capital equipment. Moreover, the cost of capital is extremely low for a large segment of corporate America, and credit conditions have eased some, with business lending beginning to rise in the, the fourth quarter. Even investment in new structures is showing some encouraging signs of perhaps bottoming out now. Spending for private non-residential structures has actually risen slightly over the last four months. And an important leading indicator of future spending in this area, the American Institute of Architects Billing Index, has moved into positive territory for the first time in over two years. All in all, then, business investment is likely to add significantly to growth this year. I'm also encouraged by prospects for export growth. Exports of goods and services have risen 16% since the end of the recession, adding one and three quarters of a percent to GDP growth. While growth in some of our major trading partners has been uneven uh, of late, expansion has been very robust in the emerging market economies that are important markets for our country's exports. Thus, demand for American exports is likely to be quite firm for the rest of this year. This economy has a lot going for it then, although there are still considerable difficulties ahead. Housing activity obviously continues to be depressed. Residential investment has fallen nearly 60% from its peak at the end of 2005. And given the large inventory of vacant homes in major markets and the ongoing foreclosure wave that continues to generate distressed sales, any advance in residential investment is likely to be slow and uneven. For the record, though, residential investment is only two and a quarter percent of GDP, so further developments in this sector are not going to have a large effect on overall growth. In addition, we've seen small increases in residential construction spending in each of the last three months, so I wouldn't be surprised if the worst is behind us in the housing market. All in all, then, I expect stronger growth in overall activity this year than last. Most private forecasters have been busy bumping up their forecast in recent weeks. And forecasts of 4% growth next year, in, this year in real GDP, are beginning to surface. If I had to write down a forecast today, it would be pretty close to that, somewhere between 35 and 4%, perhaps towards the high side of that range. A rate of growth in that range would result in a continued net gains in employment and a more sizable reduction in the unemployment rate than we've seen so far. Let me digress a moment uh, to comment on pro economic prospects for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hiring has picked up more rapidly here uh, than for the nation last year. Year-over-year -year employment growth in Virginia was more than double the national figure, 1.3% versus uh, six-tenths of a percent. Moreover, the overall impact of the recession has been less severe in Virginia than in other states of the country. The unemployment rate here is about three percentage points lower than the national rate, for example. In contrast, the Richmond area has not yet added jobs relative to a year ago, uh, but it appears to be poised to gain ground um, after more, more than two and a half years of contraction. Not surprisingly, the Richmond metropolitan area's unemployment rate is 7.4% higher than the state average, but we expect that this is going to edge down too as job growth in the region gains momentum. This generally positive assessment, both for the region and the nation as a whole, 
is complemented by a benign outlook for inflation. Over the 12 months in, it, that ended in November, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, which is our favorite price index here at the Richmond Fed, has risen only 1.0%. That's a relatively low inflation rate, especially compared with figures over 2% uh, that were common in the years leading up to the recession. The downward trend in inflation during the recession had many commentators warning of the possibility of outright deflation, declining prices. At this point, I think the risk of deflation is negligible. That's consistent with the expected inflation rates implied by the prices of price-indexed U.S. Treasury debt, which show market participants now expecting inflation to average 2% over the next five years and 3% over the five years that follow that. The recent increases in energy prices will show up in consumer price measures over the next few months, pushing overall inflation numbers up somewhat. Forecasters are expecting inflation to come in between 1% and 2% uh, this year, and that's my expectation as well. So that's the near-term outlook in a nutshell. Beyond this coming year, a lot depends on the configuration of fiscal and regulatory policies. On the fiscal front, we have in our country a serious long-term mismatch between the trajectories of spending and taxes. Many businesses contemplating new capital spending face significant uncertainty about how future cash flows are going to be taxed. And any business selling to the government has to recognize the possibility of uh, sharp uh, and constraining new spending limits. Be clear, there is no uncertainty about whether the long-run federal budget imbalance will be corrected. Projections of steadily diverging revenue and spending, such as the estimates published by the Congressional Budget Office, are simply infeasible and will not happen. The real question is how a sustainable path is going to be achieved. In advance, by deliberately adopting a credible strategy, or in extremis, forced by collapsing market confidence to adopt drastic emergency measures. We would be wise as a nation to heed the abundant empirical evidence of the superiority of taking action before crisis is upon us. On the regulatory side, thousands of pages of new legislation have recently been, been enacted, and many new implementing regulations are in the process of being drafted and adopted. Anticipated shifts in regulatory policy appear to have produced a degree of apprehension that has dampened private sector willingness to hire and invest. As implementation proceeds, the shape of the new regulatory regimes will come into view, and this dampening effect of regulatory in, in uncertainty may dissipate. For, for federal financial policy, however, major unfinished business remains. We have yet to resolve the question of the government's role in housing finance. The appalling consequences of the housing boom should thoroughly discredit the system centered around private mortgage intermediaries enjoying implicit government guarantees. Making those guarantees explicit and priced is a key component of many popular proposals for the reform of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. But that would just recreate many of the incentives of the old regime and continue to burden taxpayers with huge contingent liabilities. Financial stability and fiscal balance are likely to be elusive if we do not wind down government subsidies and guarantees for housing debt. 
Homeownership may be a laudable social goal, but if so, we should subsidize housing equity and not housing leverage. Let me conclude with a few remarks about monetary policy. During the recession, the Federal Reserve cut short-term interest rates to near zero and expanded our balance sheet from around $900 billion to over $2 trillion, which in my view was an appropriate response to a major economic shock. In addition, the FOMC in November decided to further increase the Fed's balance sheet by another $600 billion by the end of the second quarter through purchases of long-term U.S. Treasury securities. While this was mo motivated mainly by a disappointing pace of employment growth, the provision of further monetary stimulus at this point in the business cycle is not without its risks. I was among those who viewed the benefits as outweighed by the risks, including the risk that a larger balance sheet might complicate the withdrawal of monetary stimulus when the time comes to do so. The committee recognized the risks and the need to be able to adjust policy as the outlook evolves and therefore committed to, and I quote, regularly review the pace of its securities purchases and the overall size of the asset purchase program in light of incoming information and adjust the program as needed. While the outlook may not have improved enough just yet to warrant adjusting our purchase plans in the near term, I anticipate earnest reevaluation as economic developments unfold in the months ahead. That reevaluation will be challenging, though, because the level of economic activity relative to pre-recession trends may distract us from the need to raise real interest rates as the rate of growth improves. We've come through uh, an extraordinary period in our economic history, uh, which in turn has brought about extraordinary policy measures. As signs of stronger economic performance emerge, the challenge becomes determining the time and manner by which policy returns to more normal configurations. The public's confidence that policy actions are consistent with a coherent, sustainable, long-term plan for policy, both monetary and fiscal, will be an important factor supporting growth in the years to come. As this year begins, I'm hopeful that we'll see progress on this in 2011. I thank you very much for your attention. Uh, and the privilege to address you today. Thank you. I believe we have time for some questions. Anyone? How will the level of government debt Good question. Um, so uh, there's no question that um, everything else held constant, the typical economist's qualification. Uh, if you're comparing two economies and one has a larger outstanding federal debt, uh, interest rates ought to be higher in that economy uh, than they otherwise would, uh, if anything. Um, so there's conditions. There's sort of some couple extra conditions. I could, I'd have to walk you over to a textbook to explain them all, but that's a basic and and fairly broadly um, uh, a supported uh, uh, thesis. Good question. I remarked on this in my outlook of, in my, on my remarks, of course. Um, so I, I, I think it's fairly clear at this point, given the evidence we have and the, 
the research we have so far, and much more research remains to be done, but I think it's fairly clear that the government-sponsored enterprises um, and more broadly uh, institutions viewed as too big to fail um, took on excessive risks, uh, risks that of, of aggregate shocks, exposure to aggregate risk, the risk, for example, that a broad swath of um, subprime underwriting was um, ill-considered and, and uh, riskier than, than people were admitting, um, and um, that they were incented to do so, they were allowed to do so by the incentives their creditors have to had uh, didn't have to, to constrain that risk-taking. So I think it's pretty clear that too big to fail had uh, a pretty substantial effects, both on the GSE side and the bank holding company side. And um, I think the lesson we should take from that is um, that that's dangerous and a problem. I think people have absorbed that lesson. Um, and I think that um, uh, we've, in the Dodd-Frank Act and a number of measures we were taking independently, um, acted forcefully to change the regime around bank holding companies. Um, and I think the world is headed towards one in which um, requirements for the liquidity buffers and capital buffers that those institutions hold are substantially higher than what we thought was adequate before this crisis. Housing finance is a separate kettle of fish, though, and raises some separate issues. Here, I think we were the victim of a well-meaning intention to encourage home ownership um, by um, encouraging government-sponsored enterprises that had public policy mandates uh, from their chartering uh, entity um, to um, push the limits of um, uh, low-income uh, borrowing constraints. And I think that came back to haunt us. I think that was, um, in hindsight, a mistake and a major contributor, uh, at least given the data I've seen, to uh, the crisis, uh, in particular the, the boom in subprime lending. I think it's time to, for us as a society to step back and take a look at housing and housing finance. Um, home ownership, I think it's, it's come to be realized even among advocates of, of, of broader home ownership is not appropriate for everyone. And we need to be careful that we don't go too far. We've been at this, after all, encouraging home ownership for many decades. And those, those efforts accelerated. And I think, I think we overshot the mark there. There's two separate questions here. There's housing and housing finance, though. You can be in favor of, of efforts to encourage home ownership on the grounds that perhaps it makes people better citizens, enhances their lives. You know, there's costs and benefits there. I mean, locking yourself into a home means you're a little less mobile and, and so on. But given you want to encourage home ownership, how should you do it? Should you subsidize home leverage? In hindsight, that seems to have been a big mistake as well. Um, it, you know, alternatively, we could encourage the accumulation of housing equity rather than accumulate the accumulation of housing debt. Um, and I, I think those type of options are going to be a much more promising approach in the future than in the past. Sure, there's a lot of market arrangements, um, servicers, originators. The whole flow of our mortgage market now is just bolted to these two government-sponsored enterprises that are in receivership. So we've We've got to kind of disentangle ourselves from that. I don't think anyone thinks the current situation is sustainable. Um, but we ought to have on the table an option in which we gradually, in a, a careful, thoughtful way, wean ourselves from subsidies to housing finance 
and construct a system in which housing finance meets a fair market test? Good question. Yes. Good question. Tough, candid question. That's what I expect from Richmond RMA. Um, so I'm not aware of any particular regulatory initiatives aimed at, uh, you know, doing anything more to enhance the flow of capital to community banks. I, I, we recognize, we're very aware uh, at the Richmond Fed and throughout the system of the difficulties that many community banks have had in raising capital. Um, there's a lot that factors into that that phenomenon. Um, and um, I won't be able to tell you much that's uh, comforting besides be patient. Um, you know, it's, it's true that the larger institutions coming out of this crisis have had more success in raising capital than, uh, by some measures than um, the smaller institutions. But keep in mind, they were hit earlier began recovering earlier, getting over their portfolio problems earlier. So community banks, very different portfolios. Commercial real estate um, typically lags um, the business cycle uh, substantially relative to the consumer portfolios, consumer losses, which many of the large institutions are what uh, sort of hit them and which where sort of loss rates peaked uh, sometime last year. Um, I get this question, sort of another version of this question, if you want to think about it, is that um, – it's the one about sort of the future, the structure of the, of the banking industry. We had a lot of, there was a lot of discussion after the regal Neal legislation in 1994, which opened the door to interstate uh, branch banking, um, about whether this would lead to the demise of the community bank sector as we know it. Now, it is true that the number of banks in the United States has fallen since then, but our, our research indicates that, that we, we achieved a new stability, a new uh, a new structure, sort of size – thought of as a size distribution. Think of sort of a bell curve or maybe log normals better. Uh, distribution of the size of institutions from small to large. Uh, we sort of reached an equilibrium about 10 years ago, and um, that seemed to serve us well. The question is where is that distribution going now? You know, there's an obvious fallout, obvious shakeout going on, um, and talk about, uh, you know, M&A activity – um, at, at a lot of different levels, you know, the regional level and the uh, community bank level, and a lot has happened so far. I tend to think, looking at the fundamental economics of the comparative advantage of community and larger institutions, that, that those differential advantages are still there. My concern is that it's, it's really hard now to forecast the extent to which um, differential regulatory burdens emerging from implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act are likely to tilt that field one way or another. And um, it's something that we're paying attention to. As we read the drafts of proposed rulemaking, it's something we think about. Um, you know, is this a reasonable re – this, this requirement might sound great 
for somebody with, you know, tens or hundreds of billion dollars in exposure to, you know, consumer credit card debt, but does this make sense for a community bank? So we're, we're thinking about that really hard as we sift through this. And the Federal Reserve, I think, has had a good history of, um, you know, crafting regulations where we have the ability to do so in a way that is, um, is sort of measured and uh, the right size across the spectrum of banks. Um, so I, I can just tell you that there are people at the Federal Reserve System who are aware of, of the need to not distort that rel comparative advantage margin. Beyond that, it's going to take time, um, you know, building up capital, uh, building up your, you know, retained earnings, um, building up a, a franchise again uh, to be able to attract capital. But I think it'll come. I think it will come back in the industry in the next couple of years. Yes. Sure. The, the question had to do with um, the, all this talk uh, lately um, about uh, moving away from the dollar as a reserve currency. Um, I think uh, – so I, I, I can understand that, um, you know, a, an official institution, a foreign official institution uh, that has um, assets and dollar-denominated assets, holds their – money essentially in T-bills, uh, might be unhappy at times with um, the implied risk profile, that occasionally the dollar falls in value relative to something else that they care about. And it's up to them how they allocate their reserves across a portfolio of available currencies. Um, you know, an organized, I don't see why an organized effort is needed to induce people to make, you know, foreign official institutions to make decisions that um, are better for them. It's up to them. The market has met – the dollar has met a market test as an international reserve currency in essence. Uh, we didn't force it on anyone. Um, and there are, there are very healthy economic reasons why the dollar is preeminent um, as a, uh, an international reserve currency. To name just one, um, it's very often the case, taking two non-dollar currencies at random, that a transaction out of one currency into the other is less expensive if you, instead of going directly – go through the dollar. And that's true for some major currencies as well. Um, so I, I think there's, there's healthy reasons for us to uh, – and I'm fairly optimistic um, that we're going to retain a fairly strong position as an international reserve currency. If we were – if that were to erode, if our share of the international reserve currency market, as, as, you, as it were, were to erode, I don't think it would cause um, any material problem for us as policymakers or a country. Thanks. I wish I knew. Uh, question is, um, uh, you know, if we don't adopt a path of adopting a credible plan ahead of time, uh, when's the crisis going to come? Uh, I can't tell you. And sort of the nature of uh, crises is that it's, it's hard to predict in advance. If you could predict them in advance, people would act in a way that would pull them forward in time. It, but look at the history of um, sovereign debt crises, and you'll see that you know, it's a, it's a government that's delaying adjustments that everyone understands are required, both inside and outside the government. Um, and 
markets finally lose confidence in the government's ability and willingness to do something constructive, and um, they the markets pull back as they should at times like that. Um, and that's what I was alluding to when I referred to you know these in extremis resolutions where, uh, as in the case of Greece um, or in the Asian crises in the 90s. Um, market participants essentially forced the hand um, and essentially delivered the discipline that, yes, these two rev- – the, the revenue and spending lines you have aren't crossing anytime soon. They're not sustainable, um, and we don't trust that you could roll over your debt, and uh, we're, so we're not going to roll it over now. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't have a crystal ball. Well, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if it came about uh, via a small number of people in a, uh, a small room, uh, let me say that, that an event like that is bound to be a part of the process. But I'd focus attention well as well on um, what lays the groundwork for the success of a meeting like that. You know, in the, in the history books, you read about the meetings like that that succeeded, you don't read about the ones where they ex- exchanged pleasantries and then started screaming at each other and agreed to disagree. Um, I think the preconditions, you know, are going to be a broader understanding in the public uh, of, uh, you know, just what's involved, of hard trade-offs, of what's pri- what's a priority, and what's what's less of a priority in terms of using our fiscal resources. Um, and I think, sort of, for example, the efforts of the the, the commission uh, was, uh, you know, are exemplary and are putting some great ideas on the table. The media have done a great job of explaining vividly sort of how much money is at stake with this program, how much money is at stake at that program. The New York Times had some great graphics. Um, I think more efforts like that and the more any all of us can do to share with our friends and family the need to really think about whether, um, you know, whether this Entitlement is worthwhile or not is 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 going to be useful. So, keep up your efforts. Keep up your good work. Good question. It's about the impact of the health care uh, legislation. It's a tough one. I am not a health economist. Um, it's uh, you know it's not my sort of not my training background, I've sort of tried to keep uh, broadly informed um, about sort of what the, the, the typical thing, what the thinking of, of responsible healthcare economists are, is. Um, I, I, it's hard to gauge, um, you know, it's, there, I, I'm wary of the elements that impose mandates on, on businesses uh, that essentially um, sort of alter the cost of hiring or firing, um, because we've, as we've seen in Europe, 
um, impediments like that can can um, sort of make a labor market a bit sclerotic and can distort uh, decisions. I, I, from what I know now, that might not be, you know, it might not be um, as bad as I fear, but I, I have some apprehension about that. Um, its efficacy in actually bringing about improvements in the healthcare system, I have, cons- I have um, some concerns about as well. Um, I, you know, this, um, you know, economists are generally averse to mandates um, and making people sort of legislating that the, the outcome you want is going to happen, that people have to behave the way uh, you'd like it to be. Um, economists generally prefer incentives, you know, use incentives. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure enough attention has been given to, um, you know, things that are, are preventing um, the system from naturally evolving sort of um, remedies for the fragmentation of healthcare that is what seems to impede quality. And it's all about quality, sort of quality per dollar is what we're concerned with at the end of the day, I think. Um, and uh, so I'm not sure enough's been done there. There is a lot of movement, um, hospitalists, uh, hospitals consolidating, um, physicians, practicing physicians' relationships to hospitals, I think is at the heart of this in some sense. Um, but this, this problem of the uninsured, I'm not sure this is the right approach to, but um, again, I'm not an expert. And um, it's, it's a, I got to say, though, it's a growth area in the economy. And it's, it's a huge... You know, it's a sector that's growing more rapidly in terms of employment than any other. And uh, so it's it, it's going to be something that macroeconomists are going to need to think more about, I think, in the years ahead. Sure. One more? One more question? Um, I am. Uh, I very much am um, uh, because... Um, uh, you know, there's. I, I think that there's. Um, you know, I think there's. There's always the potential. Uh, you know, in the municipal sector, for um, you know, a, a, an insolvency or a, a pro- liquidity problem to be resolved uh, disruptively. Um, you know, on our side is that uh, there are a lot of municipalities, and the way the resolves seem to be, um, to some extent, independent and. Um, you know, in addition, we, you know, default rates, uh, one has to recognize, have been relatively low and relatively manageable so far. Um, I certainly think there's there's a potential there that anyone needs uh, to, to recognize that um, because they're facing, you know, at the end of the day, problems that are fundamentally similar, pen, overhang of unfunded pension liabilities, for example, um, I think there's the potential for broader distress there. Uh, that's that's worthy. I, I'm not going to hang my hat on any any big number or anything, but um, I think there's a potential there for for some issues going forward. We need to pay attention to. Well, thank you very much. Be delighted, audience. Great to see you. Look forward to seeing you back next year. <laughs>